This is James Schofield and you're listening to Behind the Bottom Line. This is episode 7 of season 7 and is a story all about exploitation. Commercial, professional and sexual. But the interesting question is, who is exploiting who? So if you're jogging, make sure you pay careful attention to your surroundings. If you're at home cooking, don't put too much salt in that sauce. And if you're sitting down and relaxing, ah, well, maybe you'd better get ready to sit on the edge of your seat as you listen to Exploitation. Shall I get you a taxi? Richard asked. He turned up the collar of his cashmere coat against the dirty November wind blowing down the London street outside the restaurant Covent Garden they'd just left. I'll take the bus, Annie answered. Well, let me walk you down to the Strand then. She shrugged her shoulders. If you want, you can get your taxi from there. Richard had already thought of that. As they walked, he tried to take her arm, but she shook herself free. Not much longer, he thought. Stay nice. At the lights where she had to cross the road, he stopped. Well, goodbye then. I'm... I'm sorry it ended like this, but it's for the best. He thought about giving her a last kiss, but her fierce, pale face stopped him. She nodded. Probably. By the way, I should tell you one thing. Ooh, taxi! Richard shouted hastily, waving at a black cab. It stopped, and he climbed gratefully into the warm interior. Take care, he said. Odd, he thought. She doesn't seem particularly sad. Cold, but not sad. He was glad she wasn't crying. That was always so embarrassing. Camden Town, please, 156 Pratt Street. As the cab set off, he relaxed for the first time all day. Thank God that was over. At fifty-five, he was too old for this kind of thing. A pity that he couldn't write the article he'd planned. But that bastard lawyer had left him no choice. Perhaps he and Miriam should go for a holiday, somewhere nice and warm like Mustique. It would give poor Annie time to get over him. Richard Olson was a journalist, a financial journalist. Six months earlier, he'd started researching an investment company, Hawksmoor Trading Limited. It was a difficult organisation to investigate. Its speciality was ethical investments in Africa, meaning the diamonds they traded were certified as coming from legitimate sources and the rare metals from well-managed mines with happy employees. Best of all, Their return on investment was phenomenal. Quarter for quarter, 
they showed profits between 30 to 50%. Big investors begged to be allowed to give them more money. If something seems too good to be true, he told the financial editor of the newspaper he worked for, then it probably is. He began collecting evidence. A geologist who had been fired from a mine in Zambia showed him horrifying pictures of working conditions. He flew to Angola and found the company's diamond trade was actually based on blood diamonds, stones dug up illegally and used to finance wars in the region. They were bought by middlemen, given a fake certificate and sold to Hawksmoor at a fraction of their real price. But every time he thought he was getting somewhere, his source would dry up. Richard became increasingly frustrated and was about to stop when he met Annie Hart, a junior secretary who'd just started in the company with a strong interest in the environment. They're destroying everything they touch in Africa, she agreed. We have to stop them. Richard explained that he needed documentation to prove his claims. No problem, she answered. Her being attractive was a bonus, and after a time their meetings moved to a discreet hotel in Mayfair. He showed her any new information he'd uncovered, she gave him the documents that she'd copied, and then they went to bed. Richard could hardly believe his luck. He began writing an expose of the company that would lead to it being investigated from top to bottom when published. Thanks to you, he told Annie, I might end up winning awards. You're amazing. So the visit to Richard at the newspaper offices by a lawyer that morning came as a big surprise. His name was Adam Kingston, he said, and he wanted to discuss Hawksmoor trading. We have nothing to discuss, Richard said. You'll learn my opinion of Hawksmoor in the newspapers soon enough. Ah, that would be unwise, Mr. Olson, because then Mrs. Olson would have to learn about Ms. Hart. Richard's problem was that if Miriam found out about Annie, she'd divorce him. She'd warned him of that when they'd married. Consequently, Richard had always been careful to keep his little affair secret. After all, Miriam was the one with the real money, and Richard had expensive tastes. The conversation with Kingston was brief. The photographs he had of Richard and Annie were undeniably intimate. Richard agreed not to write an article and then he rang Annie to arrange a last meeting. Understandably, she was upset. It had been a rough day for her, she said. She'd been told by HR at Hawksmoor to clear her desk in ten minutes and was then escorted by security from the building. And now... Richard didn't want to see her any more. And you're not going to write about what we discovered? She asked, 
he shook his head. I'm sorry, Annie. I was always honest to you about Miriam. So, I've lost my job for nothing. And I feel terrible about that, he said, looking sincere. I really do. He ordered himself another cognac and then paid the bill. Darling, wasn't that the company you were investigating? asked Miriam a few weeks later. Richard came off the balcony of their hotel room to find her watching CNN and a report of a police raid on the Hawksmoor offices. Senior directors were filmed being led out in handcuffs. Arrests followed this morning's sensational report in the Guardian newspaper by freelance investigative journalist Annie Hart, the reporter said. Annie, what led you to start? After Miriam went down to the pool, Richard called Annie. That was my story, Annie. You never told me you were a journalist. I'll sue you. You have no right. You didn't want it, Richard answered Annie coolly. Go ahead, sue me. Speak to my lawyer. I will! Who is he? Oh, you know him already. Adam Kingston. Shall I ask him to visit you again? This story was written for Business Spotlight and the original title was Too Good to Be True. I changed it because I realized it's all about people exploiting other people. And of course, it's not just other people, it's also countries. The behavior of Hawksmoor trading is not untypical for how the global north treats the global south. Um, and the exploitation of many countries in Africa by the rest of the world is truly depressing. Whether it's mining for precious stones in Angola or Namibia uh, or for rare metals for the telecommunications industry in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, all over the place you can see truly shocking exploitation of these countries uh, to benefit the wealthy global north. The pharmaceutical industry, of course, is particularly tr shocking. They seem to use a lot of countries in Africa as test grounds for drugs that they want to experiment with um, because they can carry out experiments there that they would never be allowed to carry out in other countries. And in fact, they can literally get away with murder. John le Carre, in his book The Constant Gardener, uh, wrote a horrifying story of greed and corruption and murder. Um, and he said it was actually only like a picture postcard compared to the reality this story is very loosely based on a real-life case in Kano in Nigeria involving the company Pfizer. Uh, Pfizer decided to test an experimental drug for meningitis in Nigeria in the mid-1990s, which resulted in the deaths of numerous children. And Pfizer eventually settled out of court in 2009, I think, and what was particularly wicked in this case was that Pfizer hired private investigators to uncover dirt on the Nigerian uh, attorney general um, because they wanted to blackmail him to drop the charges against them. I think that at some point Africa's day was, will come because their resources um, and their 
wealth of people will eventually enable them to reverse the tables, but I don't think it'll be in my lifetime. The relationship between Richard and Annie, I like the idea of a man believing he's so clever that he can get all the information he wants, um, as well as getting sex, and then ending up actually uh, on the losing end of this. In my observation of people I know, women generally come out of illicit affairs worse off than men. And I like the idea of reversing that which of course is the joy in my stories. I can construct a world where bad company directors get arrested and bad men get exploited. And as Oscar Wilde said, uh, the good ended happily, the bad unhappily. That is what fiction means. The original story was quite different. It was all about a theatre critic trying to decide what to write. And for that, the title Too Good To Be True would have been very apt. Um, and this was the original version, or the original first couple of paragraphs that I wrote. At this performance of Romeo and Juliet, you will cry, he once wrote, tears of helpless laughter. The only tragedy about Shakespeare's story of young, unhappy love in this version, with Mr. Henry Trumper and Miss Edna Francis in the leading roles, is that either of them were allowed onto the London stage. Of course, the managers, directors and actors try to influence him. He received bottles of champagne which he drank, expensive chocolates which he ate, invitations to intimate dinners with leading ladies in their dressing rooms, which he thoroughly enjoyed. But they made not the slightest difference to what he wrote in his review, which is why his newspaper's readers loved him and the theatre world feared him. He looked at the clock. 12.30, and he hadn't written a single word of the five to six hundred that were expected of him. What was he going to do? This was going to be a story about a theatre critic who was famed for his honesty, who has to write a review of a show that's being financed by a friend. If he writes an honest review, the show will shut down and his friend will be bankrupted. What should he do? And uh, I quite liked the beginning, but then I stopped at that point because I realised that if it was me, I would save my friend, however bad the show, and I couldn't see that there was any argument. But probably that's because I'm not a theatre critic and I don't think they have any friends. After my adventures with a theatre critic, I then moved on to a slightly more serious story, um, which is closer to exploitation. That story is called Taking Stock, and it went like this. Robert Polk stared at the words on his computer screen and, as he always did on these occasions when he wasn't sure how to continue, began pulling hairs out of his eyebrows absent-mindedly. It was now midnight, and he was already three hours late finishing his article about Kleinstein trade and investment funds. By 4am the presses for Investor's Bible should be printing it, and by 5 deliveries across the country should begin. The editor had been sending him frantic emails every 20 minutes since 9 o'clock that evening. Robert had turned off the internet after the first two. He found an old packet of cigarettes at the back of a drawer and lit one. He'd given up six months before, 
so he put his head out of the window so the children didn't complain about the smoke at breakfast. How to finish the article? He knew what he should write, but if he did that he'd lose his family. Yet if he wrote the lies they'd ordered him to write, then his self-respect as an honest financial journalist was gone forever. His research into Kleinstein had started six months before. It was a secretive organisation and he could only slowly uncover information. Their speciality was investments in Africa, apparently all clean and legitimate. The diamonds they bought were certified as coming from legitimate sources. The valuable wood came from ecologically managed forests. The coffee beans from plantations with no child labour. And the rare metals needed for the greedy electronics industry from well-managed mines with happy employees. And their returns on investment were phenomenal. Quarter for quarter, they showed profits between 30 to 50%, so that big investors begged to be allowed to give them money. Robert knew something must be wrong. Little by little, he started to find little pieces of information that told him his instinct was right. A dissatisfied supervisor from a mine in Zambia showed him horrifying pictures of working conditions. He flew to Angola and found out how blood diamonds, diamonds dug up illegally, were used to finance wars in the region. And that's where it stopped. And as you can see, it's a little bit closer to the final version. But I didn't like it because I thought Robert was turning into too much of a superhero or he was going to have to turn into some kind of superhero, and I thought that was a bit boring. And so that's how I came up with the character of Richard, who maybe has good intentions, but is weak and greedy, and quite happy to exploit Annie as much as he can, little knowing, of course, that she was actually exploiting him. Anyway, as you can see, these stories go through quite a lot of different stages starting off with something that was probably intended to be comic, going to something a bit more serious, and finally ending up with the story Exploitation. And in fact, when I look back, at, I can see that I had eight different versions. Uh, of course, versions 5 to 8 are quite close to the version that I read you, but even the version that I read you um, is actually a version 9 because I made a few small changes before I recorded it for you. So a lot of work goes into these stories. I think you should know that. So I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. If you did, why don't you visit my website behindthebottomline.com or Spotify and Apple Podcasts, and you can leave a review or give a rating, and uh, then your friends might find out about it. And remember, you can read each of the season stories on my website. If you go to the show notes, and there you will find the complete text. If you go to the bookshop tab, you can also buy my books, Double Trouble, which featured in season five, and Peril in Venice, which is a murder mystery, and that featured in season six. Next week's story is called catchphrase. What is the coach for a motivational speaker going to do when she finds that she is no longer motivated? So I hope you'll be back to listen to it and until then take care and goodbye.